um, that uh, I pray that your heart would be open to how to apply this to your own daily living and maybe in areas where you see difficulty or you see mountains or you see giants, realize God's not just taking his hand off you and letting the enemy whip on you. He's using the enemy as a pawn to bring growth in your life. Some say amen. amen. All right, praise God. Father, we thank you tonight for this uh, chapter here, Lord. And as we look at Acts 5 together, I pray, Holy Spirit, you open it up to us and each of us would go home with something from your heart. And Father, while we don't like pruning and we don't like persecution and we don't like any of those things, we realize you're the potter and we're the clay. So do whatever it takes to mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' matchless name. And the church said, amen. amen. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it? Long to you before it was sold and after it was sold wasn't the money at your disposal what made you think of doing such a thing you have not lied to men but to god when ananias heard this he fell down and died and great fear seized all who heard what had happened then the young men came forward wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail.
But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts, teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt 
he too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Powerful stuff. Gamaliel had a pretty good point, didn't he? Take a look at that. So here's Acts 5. We start off with the church growing, the church prospering. They're all getting along. There's unity. And here we have the first kind of glitch. Uh, enter Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, people were selling property and giving the money to the church. Realize it's in his fledgling state. It needs, uh, it needs everything to be, uh, you know, to spread the gospel. It's going to send out missionaries. It's going to send out Paul. So it's in its formative stage. Um, I, I don't know exactly why they were selling their property and bringing money, probably to fund the ministry that was going on and just to feed and clothe and take care of widows. There was, you know, churches have expenses, so here we go. And they sell the property and that's all well and good. People are doing that, but they hold some of the proceeds back for themselves. Now that in and of itself is not a big deal. Uh, Gary, this is a little boomy. Could you just take it down a notch? So I want you to look at this carefully because whenever there's finances involved with the church and people doing things, we need to really see God's heart in all this. God doesn't want your money. God's not interested in green paper. Hello? God's not up in heaven. Boy, if I had more money, I could really... Listen, our money, it belongs to us. We earn it. It's from the Lord. We give back to God. Why? To prove we've conquered greed and to prove that we don't serve money, but we serve God. The only way to prove we've conquered greed is that we are generous and we give. And, you know, Ananias and Sapphira had an opportunity to give here, and it's fine. They, they bring, but they hold back some of it. Now, Peter exercises his gift of discernment here, realized the apostles are moving into the gifts of the Spirit here in powerful ways. You know, how did he know about this? Well, he knew it by the, the fact that the Holy Spirit revealed to him. He said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep some of the price of the land? Uh, while, it main, while it was unsold, did it not remain your own? And after you sold it, was it not under your control? Why is it that you conceived this deed in your heart and you have lied to men 
not to men, but to God. So that's a great question that Peter asked him. He discerns, look, you're, you're playing games here, and I know exactly what you're doing because the Holy Spirit revealed it to me. And, and basically, he fleshes out the offense in verse 4. It wasn't that, you know, he kept some of the money. He could have done that, and it would have been fine. God doesn't demand that we give everything all the time and every, listen, he could have kept some of that. He could have gave 50-50. He could have gave just a tenth of it. Fine. But here's the problem. He wanted to make everybody think he gave it all and keep some for himself. He wanted to look good and not be good. That's the problem. See, God doesn't like it when people uh, religiously do things to look good in the eyes of men. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, they're totally corrupt. And he, he looks at this in this situation. You might think that the, the punishment that's going to get meted out here in just a minute is pretty, you know, I mean, it's pretty over the top. Could you imagine if every time we did something with a bad motive, we just got struck down dead? There'd be nobody here tonight and nobody to preach either. The pulpit would be empty. Right? I mean, every time you have a bad motive, a wrong motive, a selfish motive, every time you want to look good and, and you know, want to look a little better than you are, do you ever notice people want to look just a little better than they are? <laughs> Come on, that's why we buy clothes that hide stuff and put makeup and, well, let me get going on that too much. But we wanted to just look a little better than he was and he wanted to he wanted to look good in the eyes of people. He wanted everybody to say, oh, look at that. What a generous guy. Look how he gave. And, and God looked down at that, and he, he doesn't, God has, is very offended by people who use money and spirituality to dupe others. He always was, and he, and he still is. And, you know, the big deal is that this guy lied to the Holy Spirit. He didn't realize what he was doing that when he did it, but he realized when Peter called him on it. Now, God despises people who play religious games, who want to look good and not be good, who use the church to garner influence and prestige. And listen, I've been around the block a long time. I've been in the ministry a long time. I've, been, I've seen a lot of things. And if you think that this stuff doesn't happen today, I don't know what bubble or rock you're living under, but just stay there because it's probably a good place to be. But I'm, I mean to tell you, this stuff happens with money and finances and people, you know, dipping in and, and enriching themselves and taking more than they should. And, you know, this stuff happens and we know that that stuff happens. And God is showing the church from the beginning. He, he has very little tolerance for those who play games with his church, who want to look good outwardly, but remain twisted internally. Now, Ananias thought he could fool leadership. And I want you to see that. You can fool leadership sometimes. You can even fool mom sometimes. But you can't fool God. You can't fool the Holy Spirit ever, ever. You can't fool God. And so, you know, Ananias thought he could just fool leadership. He could look good in the eyes of the people. You know, it was really no big deal. Uh, but he was really lying to the Holy Spirit, and Peter calls him on it. And when he realizes what he's done, judgment falls, and he falls down dead. They wrap him up, they take him out, and they bury him. Just like that, bing, bang, boom, wow. No call for repentance. No, you know, confess your sin, nothing. It's quiet. I don't, I, you know, there again, this is New Testament. This is grace. This is on the other side of the cross. So God's making a point here. He's trying to make a point here. And I, I hope we can figure out what he's trying to say. At least we fall down and get wrapped up and carried out someday. You guys are tough tonight. 
Now, I don't, I don't know why God did this so you know, powerfully and did this, but he was trying, you know, he was trying to get their attention. I'm going to bring out a point in just a minute, but uh, three hours later, Ananias's wife, Sapphira, shows up. Now, Peter plays along. He could have said, you know what happened to your husband? No, he didn't do that. He asked, you know, how much did you guys get for the land? He kind of played along with it. He gave her a chance to see if she would do the right thing or if she would go along with the lie. Now, they were both guilty of premeditating this charade together. And in verses 9 and 10, Peter calls her out on her treachery. And he says, you know, you, you know, why did you do this? You lied to the Holy Spirit. And, you know, the people who carried your husband out. Now, she didn't know this, but she was in cahoots with him. And she lied just like he did. And so judgment fell. She finds out that her husband is dead. The judgment of God falls on her. And she's wrapped up and carried out and buried the two of them in one shot in one day for this offense, the death penalty for lying to the Holy Spirit. Now in scripture, the only sin that, they, that scripture teaches is unforgivable is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're, you know, people ang get anxious over this and they think, have I done it? Listen, if you're thinking, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? You haven't done it. Because if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, your heart will be so hard, you won't care that you've done it, and you, your heart will be so hard that you wouldn't even have the desire to repent. But these guys here blaspheme the Holy Spirit and don't get a chance to repent, and God's making a statement here. Both of them are carried out. Now note the impact that this has on the early church. In verse 11, we see that the impact is, and a great fear, say fear, and great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. So God wanted to make a statement here while the church is growing and while it's attracting all kinds of people and while, you know, people are giving and they're sharing and all this stuff. He wanted to make a point that number one, I'm God and I'm holy. Don't mess with me. Number two, the Holy Spirit's at work here. You're not just dealing with men. This is my church. It's not Peter's church. Okay, he's making some points here and that don't mishandle money. Don't mishandle the things of God. Don't try and look good and not be good. So uh, the result is that fear came over the church. And I say, that's not good. Fear's not good. The fear of the Lord is good. The fear of the Lord is what we need. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's amazing. You know, one event like this, and it'll tighten up everybody. You know? Usually, I mean, usually when it seems like everybody's getting away with everything, people push the boundaries. You know, I don't know what God's got to do to get the attention of this generation, to get the attention of the church in the West here, but sometimes I think he needs to shake it up so the fear of God falls upon all of us. Because you know what the truth is? Sometimes all of us play too fast and loose with the things of God. Say amen. amen. So verses 12 and 13, that happens and everybody kind of tightens up. You know, maybe there were some people who were half in and half out of the church. Maybe they were there for the wrong reason. Maybe some people thought I'm going to profiteer off of this. And you know what? This would dry up that element. So God knows what he's doing. It seems harsh, yet it produces a result. Verses 12 and 13, miracles are taking place. And see, that's, a, that's another thing I want you to notice is miracles were helping the church grow. Why? Because the obvious anointing of the Holy Spirit on the apostles and their ability to use their spiritual gifts and, and touch people and heal people and see people changed and set free. I mean, that created a huge buzz in Jerusalem. And you think back to Jesus' ministry. What was the thing that attracted the, the multitudes that made Jesus thronged by the people? It was when he started to heal the sick. 
and, and do all kinds of miracles. Miracles are very attractive. They, they, uh, people on the outside, they, they get excited about things. They get drawn to them. God doesn't want to draw people just by signs. He doesn't want to just keep people by miracles. He wants us to make a commitment to him that's based on our love for him. Amen. So realize signs and wonders are important. They, they produce some certain things, but they're not the end all to everything. Okay, because you can attract a lot of babies and a lot, a lot of half-hearted converts, but you know, persecution is the one thing that purifies the church. Okay, we're gonna get to persecution in just a little bit, but here the miracles are, are happening. Now, they're uh, in Solomon's portico and they're, they're, you know, they're doing their miracles and all that stuff. The religious leaders won't associate with you know, what's going on here. They're watching everything and they're getting reports on everything that's going on and they wouldn't touch the apostles. Why? Because the people loved them and the church continues to grow and as it grows, the religious sects, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all of the leadership there begin to feel more and more threatened. Remember last time we were together, the reason persecution started is because the Sadducees felt threatened that they were teaching about the resurrection of the dead and the Sadducees didn't believe in that. So you had a doctrinal conflict and now bam you know it's on gloves are off yeah it's worse here because signs wonders and miracles that they can't refute or can't pretend that aren't happening are happening and now they're really in a bad spot here all of their power is threatened they see the growth of the church they're threatened by it and they are they're they're forced to, to take some type of action here verses 15 and 16 the frequency of the miracles uh it, it ramps up here. It says, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out of the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing all the people who were sick and afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Say all. That's a good miracle ministry right there, amen? Nobody's turned away, nobody, nobody misses it. They're healed of their infirmities. And, and notice it said that they brought those who were afflicted by unclean spirits, the demonic possession that was occurring, that somehow the leadership of you know, the people there had not addressed. You got all kinds of people who are you know, being afflicted by demons. Are you helping them? Are you delivering them? Are you casting them out? No, no, and no. Here comes the new guys in town with their new doctrine and this, this fancy Jesus stuff and all this Holy Spirit talk. And guess what? They're casting devils out of people. Everyone's healed. Everyone's delivered. What a beautiful thing. All of those miracles are creating a buzz in the streets. People are just laying their folks out everywhere. It, reminds, it should remind us of Jesus' ministry, how the people did the same exact thing. And we see what Jesus did. Remember, he said, greater things than this shall you do. The church is not to be in a dormant, hold the fort down stage. We are to push back the gates of hell. We are to cast out devils. We're to preach the gospel. We'll see people healed of all manners of diseases. Come on. That's what the church is to do. You know, sometimes in the West here, we get so routine and mundane and so program-oriented that we forget that, you know, greater is he who's in us than he's in the world, amen? And we need to get out there and we need to do the work of the ministry. And you know what? God empowers those who step out and take risk for him, amen? Half an amen? Let me say that again. God empowers those who step out and take risks for him, Amen. Amen. 
So we should be doing that. Now, verses 17 and 18, here's the issue that hits the the leadership. It says, jealousy has gripped the Pharisees. Now, but the high priest rose up along with his associates and the sect of the Sadducees. Listen, and they were filled, not with the Holy Spirit, but with jealousy. Jealousy is a bad thing to get filled with. They laid their hands on the apostles and they put them in the public jail. So they they, they can't take it anymore. Why? Because they're being shown up in every way. They're being shown up to be charlatans, to be legalists, to be those who talk about God but don't know God, those who talk about God's miracles but don't perform any of them. So they're getting shown up and what happens is they get jealous. And the jealousy here actually provokes them to violence. Now listen to me, fake spirituality can never produce real fruit. Think about that. People who are just sitting in church faking it, not gonna produce real fruit. People standing behind pulpits just faking it, not living the life, not committed to Jesus, not walking in the spirit. Fake spirituality can never produce real fruit. Gamaliel's gonna talk about this a little bit. Basically, if something is of man, it's gonna fail. Even if it's in a church with a steeple and everybody comes to listen to it, if it's of man, it's gonna fail. You know, sometimes we, we do have to speak against false doctrine and false teachers, but sometimes you just kind of let them burn out themselves because that false fire always burns itself out. You know, throughout the years, throughout the decades, I've seen people chase all kinds of winds of doctrine, all kinds of church movements, church plants, and this new pastor, and this one came from here. Listen to me, if it's not from God, it's gonna amount to nothing. And it doesn't matter who signs off on it, who says it's great, who says it's the best thing going, if it's not of God. So, you know, you got this fake spirituality here that these guys are all just legalistic. They're filled with jealousy and it provokes them to violence. They snatch them up. They're so irritated, they have them thrown in jail. Now, in verses 19 and 21, they're in jail just for the, kind of for the night. They just get a little break here. But you know what? God apparently didn't want them in jail. You say, how do you know that? Because he sent an angel to do a jailbreak. Now, now if you break the law and wind up in jail, you can pray for that. But I don't think it's coming. See, the thing is, they were innocent. And all of the disciples, all of the apostles, all of the believers are going to suffer persecution at times. Not every time that they wind up in trouble, there's a jailbreak. Not every time that there's a problem, there's an angel that shows up. But sometimes God does miraculously intervene. And when he does, we should be thankful. We should be grateful. When, when he doesn't, we should, see, we should try and see what he's teaching us in those moments. So they're jealous. They snatch him up. They throw him in jail. God doesn't want him in jail. The angel comes. He opens the door. He breaks him out. So what's the point here? God is trying to show everybody involved that he's in control. He's showing the leadership of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, hey, you can put him in jail, you can lock the door, you can throw away the key, and if I don't want him there, I'll, I'll just take him out. He's showing the, the apostles, hey, men can snatch you, men can grab you, men can threaten you, but if I protect you, if I come to, to break you out, I'm in control. See, sometimes God has to prove to everyone involved that he's in control. 
And this was just as much for the apostles and the believers in the early church as it was for the, you know, the Sanhedrin and the leadership there. Everybody involved had to realize God was sovereign. He's in control of everything all the time. He never relinquishes his control and he sends this angel and the angel lets him loose, but then he tells him to go right back to doing what they were doing. I mean, you think the angel might've said, run and hide but he doesn't. Like, how would you feel if you were them like, man, you know, can't we just take a break for a while? Can't we just, you know, move to another city? No, the angel tells them to go right back to doing what they were doing. And so they're obedient, and it's a beautiful thing. Uh, They go back, and they go, and they begin to teach, and they begin to uh, do what they were doing in the courts there. Now in verse 23 through 26, the, the imprisoned men are sent for in the morning. Everybody's assembled, but the angel beat them, and they're out of jail. And by the time the Sanhedrin sits down to judge these guys, when they go to look in the cell, the cell's locked, but nobody's in there. So there's confusion. The temple guard is on the spot. Why? Because when you're charged with locking somebody up and then they're not there, you're in trouble. So here's, you know, the temple guards trying to explain, the high priest trying to figure it out. Nobody knows what's going on. All they know is they're not there. They locked them up. They've got nobody to grill this morning. Yet somebody comes and gives her the report that, you know what, they're right back where they were doing the same thing as if they had never been arrested. (laughs) You might question the wisdom of this, but God is making a point here. So the high priest sends out the temple guard again to snatch them up. Um, and he brings them uh, before the, the Sanhedrin again in verse 26. This time they're treated with a little more dignity. Why? Because the people are just enamored with what's being done and the people are receiving it well. So the, the leadership's afraid of the people and they, they won't beat them. They won't touch them. They won't be violent with them in front of the people because they're afraid that it's going to cause a riot. And so this time they're treated with a little more dignity. They're brought before the judges without violence and uh, the, the people are kind of, you know, bolstering their fame here because the people love them and the leadership hate them. Verses 27 through 29, it's the same verbal exchange with these guys. We told you not to teach in this name. We told you to shut up about Jesus. We told you to stop doing these things. And, and I mean, think about it. At, at some point, it's gonna be, this is all they've got. They, all they can do is threaten them. They can grab them. They can lock them up. And it's the same old broken record. Don't speak in Jesus' name. Don't teach and don't, don't do that. And it's the same answer. We rather obey God than men. And you know, you might look at that and go, you know, this is just, you know, kind of a a broken record here, but you know, we have to understand what they're saying applies to us. We should obey God rather than man. Now, I know they stopped teaching you know, the constitution in school and they stop teaching what your rights are and they, 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 they stop teaching you about the branches of government and what's coming out of schools and colleges now don't know anything about the freedoms we have. So they bred a nice generation of obedient sheep for themselves to lord over, okay? If you're not aware of this, good morning. Smell the coffee? The church should never buckle to that. 
oh, well, you know, you shouldn't talk about uh, religion and politics and you should, you know, separation of church and state. I I've been over the Bible up and down and backwards. I can't find where it says separation of church and state. I can't find where it says that I should be quiet about my faith in Jesus Christ. I can't find where it says I shouldn't share the gospel with everyone who will listen. <laughs> Yet, just a few people talking about man's laws have shut down a whole generation to the point where, you know, we're afraid to share the gospel. These, just, these guys just got grabbed up and jailed and they're back at it doing the same thing. They are gonna obey God rather than men. It doesn't say what the answer is to that. You know, they must have been arguing back and forth, but in the final analysis, they were gonna obey God instead of man and so should we. Verse 30 through 32, Peter gives them a response here and it's chock full of all the themes of the gospel. Notice every time Peter speaks, there's themes that are coming out of his mouth. Why? Because God is trying to make some points here and these points are the pillars of the gospel. He said, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and for forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so the, is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Just in those few verses there, 30 through 32, there are a lot of gospel themes. Let me go over them with you. God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the main one right there. Uh, he who believes, we gotta believe what? That Jesus died and he rose from the dead, amen? So there's that theme. You know the Sadducees were hating to hear that. Oh, here we go with the resurrection of the dead again. He said to him, you hung him on the cross. Whoa, you know, the, the Pharisees are really getting hung up over this personal guilt here that Peter keeps throwing them. At one point they say, you're trying to lay his death at our charge. Yeah, and what Peter wants him to understand, and this is a gospel theme, is that the reason Jesus died is because we're sinners and we needed a savior. So just as much as they drove him to the cross, we drove him to the cross. Just as much as their sin nailed him to the cross, my sin nailed him to the cross. And then he says, God exalted Jesus. So we see the father exalting the son. They say that Jesus is both prince and savior. So there again, Jesus is elevated. He's important. He's the cornerstone. It said that Jesus, what, died to grant repentance and forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel that he's preaching in a nutshell here, amen? This is what all, it's all about. He died, he rose, what? So that we can be forgiven, so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we can be children of God. And they say, we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit who is given to those who are obedient. Wow, ouch. You know all those miracles we're doing? It's not us, it's the Holy Spirit. And, and you know what? If you were obedient to God, the Holy Spirit would flow through you too, guys. Boy, they were winning friends in that crowd, weren't they? We are witnesses of these things. This is very important. The apostles were eyewitnesses to what Jesus had done. So they couldn't refute their testimony about Christ, and they couldn't refute the miracles. Verse 33, Peter, uh, anointed under the influence of the Holy Spirit, really convicts the Sadducees, and it says they were cut to the quick. The Sadducees' response to being convicted here is chronicled in verse 33, but when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. What does that mean? They were convicted. Have you ever heard a piece of truth that just hit you so hard it staggered you for a second? Wow. 
cut to the quick. So what's their response to being convicted by the Holy Spirit? And they intended to kill them. Wow. Think about that response. Now, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm not trying to be harsh on them. I'm not trying to pick on them. But I'm just trying to show you the the response here shows the darkness that had crept into the spiritual leadership. That even though they feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, instead of with tears and repentance, getting right with God and confessing sin, instead they want to snuff it out and quiet it up and shut it down. Wow. Isn't that a picture of the world? You know, the darkness of the world hates truth. And when you preach the truth and you teach the truth and you live the truth, even when you do it in love, they hate it. The response to God's love, the response to God's arms open wide, the response to God saying, repent and I'll save you, is you know what? We want this message shut down. We want to shut these guys up. We want to kill them. Now, they may have done that if they had the chance, but God is not allowing it, obviously, at this point. But the Sadducees are also, you know, spoken to in just a bit here. Gamaliel in verse 34, one of the wiser men of you know, the, the people there, he speaks up and he sends the apostles out of the room and then he has a discussion with the Sanhedrin. And Gamaliel's wisdom is chronicled in 36 through 38. And, you know, I, I, as we were watching that on the screen, I heard some of you, you know, reacting to that. And it, it was pretty profound what he said. And it's a timeless principle that he uses. And we need to, you know, kind of take a look at it because it rings true across the board. It says, for some time ago, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined with him. But he was killed and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. And this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in those days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if their plan or action is of man, it will be overthrown or it will fail. Verse 39, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. Wow. Powerful and profound words. There again, I think the Holy Spirit speaking to them through this man here, uh, getting the message through to them that, you know what, you guys uh, are up against this. You guys are threatened by it. You guys are jealous of it. But you know what? You better keep your hands off of them. Now, what effect this is going to have on a long term, we're going to see is, you know, is waning. But there again, they hear the fact that, you know, this man makes sense to them. Now, fake spiritual things burn out very quickly. We made that point. Not that we shouldn't go, you know, and try and... uh, There are many cults. There are many false religions. There are many false teachers out there. Some of them will knock on your door and want to hand you pamphlets. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't just, you know, let them you know, let them just do their thing and not try and, you know, kind of refute or rebut or just share our testimony. Do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. But listen to me, you know, those things are never going to produce anything that's eternal. The problem is with some of them is that they're leading people astray and people are losing their souls in the process. So 
for Gamaliel here, this is wisdom here because they were fighting against God. For us, sometimes we have to stand against false teaching and we have to stand. We got to do it in love. We got to do it in wisdom and we got to do it as the Holy Spirit leads us. Listen to me. There are some groups, there are some cults, there are some people. You could prove to them. You could show them a thousand verses. You could, you could call Jesus down and he could transfigure in front of them. And they'd say, no, I got to go talk to my elders about it. You know, I got to, no, I don't, no, I don't think this is true. This is, you know, so it's the Holy Spirit that brings conversion. But you and I need to, with love, present the gospel. And I want to encourage you, whenever you come against false teaching, share your testimony. That, oh, no, let's talk about the, the rapture. Let's talk about the antichrist. Let's talk about the mark of the beasts. Really? Why don't you just talk about what Jesus did in your life? Because nobody can refute that. Tell them how you were bound in sin. Tell them how you were hooked in drugs. Tell them how you were lost. Tell them how you're about to commit suicide. Tell them. Just be, oh, I don't want to be. Yeah, be transparent with them. Why? Because your testimony is powerful. And, and what are they going to say? No, that's not true. Sometimes all we do is testify and then we let the Holy Spirit do his work. Gamaliel testifies, I believe under the unction of the Holy Spirit, these guys find his counsel very profound and they do uh, decide to let them go in this situation. So uh, in verse 40, everyone agrees with this idea. So again, what do they do? They threaten them. Don't teach in this name. Don't talk, shut up about Jesus. And they threaten them. And this time they up, the, they up it a little bit. They beat them. Now think about that. You know, here you are doing the right things and you catch a beating for it. Now, a lot of times in life, and maybe, maybe Peter was thinking this, a lot of times in life we could use a beating and don't get one. Come on, raise your hand. Yeah, you guys ain't raising your hand. You're the ones. You know, sometimes, sometimes and God gives us grace. These guys didn't deserve a beating and they got one. That's a bitter pill to swallow. You know, when I'm wrong and it bites me, I'm wrong. But when you do everything right and it bites you, some, for some people, that is a hard offense to get over with. And I want you to see their response here. These guys have no problem with it. The, the, the early church leaders here in verses 41 and 42, the, their response to you know, this unjust beating is, so they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing. Say what? rejoicing over getting beat, rejoicing over getting persecuted. I mean, you say, what's going on here? What's going on here is this is an instance where, you know, they were really receiving something that was unjust and they knew it was as a result of them preaching the gospel. And so they were able to rejoice over it. Why? Because the persecution that they endured was showing them that God counted them worthy. They understood what Jesus went through. They understood how Jesus was misunderstood. They understood how the people treated him. They, they, were, you know, they, they knew how he was crucified and they're realizing, you know what? You know what? We're being treated the same way and that's a badge of honor. If there's not enough power in our testimony, if there's not enough Jesus in our walk, if there's not a whole, enough Holy Spirit in our words that we never receive any pushback, any backlash, any persecution, we should evaluate our witness. <laughs> no, I like it that way. I'm trying to stay under the radar. 
I'm trying to avoid beatings. I'm trying to avoid conflict. I'm trying. Listen, there's sometimes that the light has to shine in the darkness. And there's sometimes that we need to push. And if there's pushback, and if, you know, as we're studying the scripture, we realize, you know, when we're persecuted unjustly, there's a great reward that's attached to that. They rejoiced over what? That they were considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Is our generation willing to stand up enough for Christ that people would reject us and shame us and that we would suffer shame for his name? Or are we just trying to fit in and be contemporary and and be relevant to the point where we're irrelevant? Wow. We're not supposed to fit in. We're not supposed to go along with the flow. Let me tell you where the flow is going, not in the place you want to go. God called us to go against the flow. I pray that the Holy Spirit would give us opportunities to stand up and make a bold witness, to share the the gospel, to share the truth in love. And if people reject us, that we would see it not as a negative thing, but as a positive thing, that we would rejoice that we were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Rather than shrink back the church intensifies its effort. They go out, they go tell what happened, and then they go right back into the streets and they start to witness and they start to lead people to the Lord and the church continues to grow. So the effect that persecution has on the church is that it purifies it, it intensifies the witness, it intensifies the evangelistic outreach, and, and the church continues to grow. So they're going, while persecution is not a nice thought, it always has positive results. We're not praying for it, But if it comes, praise God that we are counted worthy to suffer for his name. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I just thank you tonight for this chapter. And Father, we want the book of Acts to continue in our lives, in our homes, in our churches. Father, we don't want to just read about something as if it was an historical event. But help us to realize this is a blueprint, not just for the early church, but for the contemporary church. That, Father, we should be a bold enough witness that we would make some people uncomfortable. We should be a bold enough witness that we should irritate religious people. We should be a bold enough witness that we're a threat to the forces of darkness that want to swallow a generation. Help us, Lord, to rise up and to be bold, to count the cost and to determine whatever we suffer for Jesus is a worthy thing. Help us not to just shut up and go along with the flow, but use us to be light in the darkness. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.